Hello everyone, my name is Drew Ray, and this is DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. If you're listening to this around the time of release, you've probably noticed this episode is a little late. I apologise for that, it's been one of those weeks. Lots of interesting stuff going on though that I can tell you about in future episodes, including some really cool student projects. I love it when you set students a task and you think you're going to have to hold their hand as they walk through it but they take off at a sprint with even better ideas of their own. I'm really looking forward to the results. I've also been fighting a Twitter storm this week where a popularist author accused me of being a charlatan peddling marketable ideas. It almost but not quite motivated me to try selling you all things. There's always been this uneasy tension between making money and keeping safe, and that applies as much to people selling safety as it does to people selling goods and services and trying to maintain safety while they're doing so. In this episode, we're going to explore a tale of cost-cutting and perverse incentives that resulted in a vapour cloud detonation. Let's point our hindsight at BP's Texas City Refinery, back in 2005. There's a lot of material around about this particular accident. If you Google it, the source you're most likely to see is the Baker Report, which is an independent overview of culture and oversight at BP. It's an interesting read, but not actually the most useful for technical detail, since they are asked to avoid looking at the specific causes of the accident. The most useful technical document is the US Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board report, which is very thorough. There are also two other quite interesting documents that are now in the public domain. The first is BP's own incident report, known as the Mogford Report, And the second is their management accountability investigation, known as the Bonsai Report. That didn't come out until a lawsuit sometime after the accident. When you put all the different sources together, you realise just how important your point of view is when you're trying to understand exactly what happened with an accident. One of the results of the litigation surrounding Texas City is that we've got depositions and interview reports from all of the main players in the accident right up to senior management in BP. We've got their descriptions not only of the actual events, but their perceptions of the other people in management, their views of what the problems were before the accident, and their ideas about the cause of the accident itself. It's all very revealing. For our own discussion, let's start with a simple technical picture, and we'll build up the causes of the accident from there. One of the hazards when you're dealing with large amounts of hydrocarbon is simply overfilling a tank. We saw this when we looked at Bunsfield back in episode 8. I used the analogy then of filling your car tank up with petrol and letting it overfill. There are three main protections everyone has in place. You need a way of knowing how much stuff is currently in the tank, and you need someone watching to see that it doesn't overflow. You need a way of knowing that the tank is full, preferably with some sort of automatic cutoff. And you need a way with dealing with an overflow just in case it happens. At Texas City, just as at Bunsfield, all three of these went wrong. Now in this particular case it wasn't a simple fuel tank. What we had was called a raffinate splitter tower, which is part of a larger isomerization unit. The raffinate tower worked by filling the bottom with liquid. You then heated this up with furnaces, and the hydrocarbon expanded so that it filled the whole tower. 
This lets you separate out the light and heavy hydrocarbons, and once you've separated them out, you can do the isomerization process, taking molecules and turning them to other similar molecules. On 21st of February, that particular part of the ISOM unit was shut down for maintenance. They called these shutdowns turnarounds, which gives you some indication of how they felt about them. It's a high stress time for everyone because the unit isn't making any money when it's shut down. So you turn it off, do the work, turn it back on again as quickly and smoothly as possible. These high stress times when you're trying to turn things around quickly also happen to be when things are most dangerous. There's much more that can go wrong during shutdown and startup than in steady state operation. So actually most refinery accidents happen during these times. There were three particular items on the repair list for this particular turnaround. There was a critical valve for controlling the raffinate tower. There was the transmitter that told you how much liquid was in the tower. And there was the sight glass that let operators visually check how full the tower was. Come 23rd of March, everyone had been working consecutive 12-hour shifts for over a month, and it was time to start up again. Not everything during this particular turnaround had been fixed, including those particular three items for controlling the tower. Now, technically, with those three items unrepaired, the checklists for startup couldn't be completed, but they got signed off anyway. The pre-startup safety review was also not conducted, and it was signed off as done as well. That's probably okay because it only covered boring details like making sure everyone knew the startup procedures and making sure there weren't any non-essential personnel standing around while you started up. And hey, if you're not in the habit of following the procedures anyway, why worry about whether everyone's read them? So the units were mostly repaired, they were flushed out with nitrogen to clear out any remaining air, and they were ready to start up. At 2am, the night lead operator began to fill the bottom of the raffinate tower. According to the written procedures, it was supposed to be filled to 50%, but the custom was actually to fill it right up past the high-level alarm. The high-level alarm didn't go off, it failed, but that's okay because it would have been ignored anyway, and nobody bothered to write down the fact that it had failed. Turns out the level transmitter wasn't working correctly either, so in fact the tower was well over 100% full. Now remember, the hydrocarbon hasn't been heated yet, so well over 100% full doesn't actually mean it's overflowing. All of this extra liquid is still sitting at the bottom of the tower. It's taking up about 4 metres out of a 52 metre high tower. As well as filling the tower, the night operator also filled up all the extra stuff, the heat exchangers, the piping, and then he closed the tower control valve to make sure that none of this stuff flowed out again. Now this would have been a good time to carefully explain from the night shift to the day shift, so that they could resume where the night shift had left off. But instead what happened was the night lead operator left an hour early, and he didn't write down exactly what steps he'd done. There was a more junior person who hung around, but there still wasn't any prop over handover, and he didn't actually know what steps had been done anyway because he was sitting at a different control board. So the first day operator, who arrived a little bit late, there was no real handover at all. For the day shift, there were two supervisors. We'll call them Supervisor A and Supervisor B. We do actually know their names, they're in the public domain, but Supervisor A and B. 
Supervisor A had lots of experience, and Supervisor B didn't really have any. Supervisor B was at the morning director's meeting, where a decision was taken, well, sort of taken, that the startup wasn't actually going to happen that day. Meanwhile, Supervisor A was meeting with the day shift, telling them that there was going to be a startup that day. At this stage, there was a bit of another mix-up as well. The purpose of the tower is to separate out the light and heavy liquid, but the heavy liquid storage tanks were full. So one operator understood this and closed the valve so that the heavy liquid didn't run into the already full heavy liquid tanks. Another operator thought that it was the light tanks were full, so they redirected all of the light liquid into the heavy liquid line. The end result of this confusion that really no liquid was going to go out of the tower. Just to make things a bit more complicated, the flow meters weren't working properly, so the dials showed that liquid was flowing out, even though nothing was coming out. As the day shift turns on the furnaces and begins to heat the tower, let's do a quick recap. There's way too much liquid in the tower, but the day shift doesn't know that. The level transmitter's giving them the wrong reading, and they already know that the sight glass doesn't work, so they're not going to use that. There's also no way for the liquid to flow out of the tower. They don't know that all of the extra stuff, all the exchanges and pipings, are already full. So they're expecting as those fill up, the tower level will go down. And so they're actually letting more liquid into the tank to compensate as they start up. And around this point, the experienced Supervisor A disappears. He goes off to deal with a family emergency without arranging for a replacement. We've still got inexperienced Supervisor B, but they're off dealing with another part of the plant. By now, the level in the tower is up to around 30 metres, and the transmitter is saying that there's less than 3 metres. As the liquid increases, the nitrogen at the top of the tank compresses, pressure starts to rise, but the crew doesn't really understand why. They're also heating the tower far too quickly. Again, this isn't what the procedures say you're supposed to do, but it's actually normal practice, as far as there was normal practice for people who aren't following procedures in the plant. And up till now, they'd got away with this rapid heating. But the combination of overfilling and rapid heating means that we've got cool liquid on top, hot liquid down the bottom, and bubbles of vapour starting to rise up through all this liquid. And because there's too much liquid, it's starting to splash liquid into the vapour lines at the top of the tower. So this is our overflow. The safety valves started to release because of this pressure. There are three safety valves and they all go off. Bang, bang, bang. But the operators are still troubleshooting the pressure spike, not sure what's happening. Because all the liquid is now starting to go out through the safety valves, the pressure starts to go down. Problem sort of solved. Except that we've now got 200,000 litres of flammable liquid that's up out of the tower, and into the overflow system known as the blowdown drum. Our blowdown drum can't actually handle 200,000 litres of liquid. If it was equipped with a flare tower, say, then we could have safely burned off the excessive hydrocarbon. But no one's ever got round to fitting a flare tower. So instead of burning off the extra, we have the extra forming a geyser spurting up out of the tank. And at this point, the outside staff notice wet hydrocarbons splashing out of the tank in this massive fountain. 
The outside staff radio the control room. Two of the operators hang around to try to shut down the furnaces, while the others run to try to direct traffic away, so that it doesn't light off this hydrocarbon. For good reason, there's a massive vapour cloud that's forming. Only unfortunately it doesn't help much to direct traffic away at this stage, because we've got a pickup truck idling 25 feet from the blowdown drum. They see the pickup truck spark, they hear its engine rev, they see it catch fire, and then explosion. There are 15 fatalities. They're all contract employees, and they were all working in office trailers that were parked closer than 300 feet to the ISOM unit. So hopefully all that gives you enough of a picture of the sequence of events at the time of the accident. And your first thought on hearing all that might be that this was a refinery with serious cultural and safety management problems. And if you're thinking that, you're almost certainly right. But it isn't a full answer. Because usually when people talk about poor safety management, what you're actually implying is that there wasn't enough safety management. Or maybe you're just implying that people didn't care. And neither of those apply in this case. In this particular example, management at the refinery actually did know that they had serious safety problems and they were working hard to fix them. So the accident didn't come because they didn't care, and it didn't come because they didn't try. It came because they didn't succeed. Let's talk, for example, about competency and supervision. In 1996, Amoco, who owned the refinery before they got taken over by BP, analysed all of their accident and incident data, and they realised that problems were 10 times more likely during startup and shutdown than at other times. In 2001, BP conducted a management of change analysis, and they worked out that extra supervisory assistance would be needed, particularly when the ISOM was starting up. Later on, there was a workload analysis that concluded that the board operator for the ISOM would be fully utilised during the Raffinate Tower startup and should have an assistant. Now, one way of looking at this is to say, look at all this evidence that they ignored. But the other way, when you turn it round, is to realise just how much effort they'd put into collecting evidence. There was incident data collection, there was change analysis, workload analysis, hazard and operability studies, an operator competency assurance model, external audits, internal audience, audits, culture reviews. This was not a problem that arose due to shortage of safety analysis. It wasn't a problem that management didn't care about either. But hanging over their heads was a directive from BP Corporate to reduce expenses by 25%. Now other business units had either pushed back against the directive, or they'd just accepted that they couldn't meet the target. But BP Texas City was a high-performance unit. They were genuinely trying to meet their targets as required by management. The result, though, was that staff who should be performing training were doing the work of other staff who'd left but weren't replaced. We had junior staff stepped up into more senior roles without formal qualifications or training. So lots of analysis, recognised the problem, but struggling to actually find a solution. How about the physical design of the unit? Whilst there were some other issues, the main problem here was this blowdown drum that vented directly into the atmosphere into the sewer instead of into a flare tower. This was a known problem too. 
1991, there was a proposal to fit flares to all of the open stacks, but it didn't make it into the 10-year capital spending plan. In 1992, there was an OSHA violation for failing to discharge to a safe place. But they argued against it, they settled it, and the violation got withdrawn without the changes being made. In 1993, there was a project to resolve a raft of issues relating to regulatory compliance, including the flare towers, but they just stacked too many different things into the project till the cost got too high and the whole project went unfunded. In 2002, they got round to fitting a flare to a nearby unit, and the ISOM could have been connected into this same flare. The change got proposed, but remember the last time they stacked lots of stuff into a project, the project got abandoned, so the refinery manager said, no, we're not going to overload the project, we've funded it, it's clear, we're just going to stick with it, no extra spending. There was another project that started the same year called the Clean Streams Project, which for similar reasons considered and rejected ISOM upgrades. So there was no lack of understanding of the problem, just an inability to find money to fix it. When it comes to the safety culture, again there was some level of understanding that there was a problem, but they didn't understand the problem enough to fix it. A typical example of this is their understanding of just culture. We haven't really talked about just culture on the podcast before. So here's a quote from Sidney Decker, which I think sort of encapsulates the idea. Sorry, Sid talks with an American accent, which I can't do, so I'll just have to use my own voice for the quote. If we see an act as a crime, then accountability means blaming and punishing somebody for it. Accountability in that case is backward-looking, retributive. If instead we see the act as an indication of the organisational, operational, technical, educational or political issue, then accountability becomes forward-looking. The question becomes, what should we do about the problem and who should bear responsibility for implementing those changes? Now, what I've given you is just about a five-second summary of a very complex issue. There's a heck of a lot more to be said about what a just culture is, how to promote it, and you'd expect someone managing a safety-critical organisation to be somewhat on top of some of those nuances. But that five-second summary is more sophisticated than what the people at the plant understood, even though they talked a lot about just culture. In interviews after the accident, they talked about how they'd been influenced by just culture philosophy. But when they described what they actually did, it was kind of a very black and white, have people been trained to do the right thing? If so, then fire them for doing the wrong thing. It didn't even occur to them that when your operators are badly fatigued, when procedures are routinely broken even by supervisors, when the written procedures are inconsistent with what everyone says is the right way to do things, when there's no understanding for why you're doing any of the safety things and no expectation that anyone's going to do anything about any problems you find anyway, then telling people to follow procedures is not an effective or fair form of management. The standout piece of evidence in all this is a safety culture report. It was produced by consultants called Telos just two months before the accident. Here's a quote from the report. From our perspective, the most important aspect of why this assessment and report were commissioned is the authentic hunger for bad news that it is asked to address. Starting with, but not limited to the business unit leader, there's been a consistent call for the brutal facts, the way it really is around here. 
there's been a genuine and consistent call for the truth. In our experience, with many companies interested in adopting high-reliability principles and or becoming high-reliability organisations, there's often a request for activities such as these, but no real desire for bad news. We are genuinely impressed with the strength of the desire to know what is not working at Texas City. End quote. I've been guilty myself of saying that accidents happen mainly because organisations genuinely believe they're safe when actually they're not. And really, the Telos report is the last nail in the coffin of the idea that management at Texas City believed they were safe. After complimenting the leadership for being so willing to hear bad news, the report is filled with bad news. So let's recap the big picture now. Things were not safe at the refinery. There was a culture where procedures were not followed, and where safety checks and audits found lots of problems, but the problems were never fixed. There were problems with maintenance of essential equipment. There were problems with necessary safety improvements, such as blowdown stacks with flares, that weren't being made. And management was well aware that things were not safe. They were trying and failing to improve things. So what exactly were they doing wrong? Well, we can say up front that the problem wasn't that they weren't doing enough safety analysis. Plenty of evidence that they were getting lots of advice about safety, doing lots of analysis themselves, both data collection and prospective analysis. The problems were, number one, they were focusing on measuring outputs instead of controlling inputs. They pushed to reduce injuries without considering the underlying causes of those injuries, such as staffing, fatigue and training. So when you push based on the output, you reduce the number of reported incidents, but you don't equip people to fix the problem. So they pushed, for example, to reduce non-compliance with procedures without fixing the supervision, the procedures, or the poor equipment. Controlling through lagging indicators like this is like pushing on one end of a long paper tube. Instead of the whole tube moving, it just crumples near the end that you push, in this case the reporting. To actually move the tube, you need to pull from the other end. Look at what you're putting into the process. Number two, they confused personal safety and process safety. They understood that there was a thing that was called process safety, but what they actually measured was injury rates. And they used these to work out if their attempts to improve safety were working. So they were using the wrong indicators to tell them early on whether their strategies were working or not. And number three, they treated safety as something separate from the fundamental business. They were trying to run a refinery business as if safety was some dangling constraint on the side, something else to worry about. In fact, running a good refinery is about good equipment and good people, and treating them both well would have been good for both safety and business. The two biggest things they could have done to improve safety have actually got nothing to do with the safety staff. They were to invest in skills and career development for their staff, and to make some hard-nosed choices about which assets were profitable, which ones to keep and maintain, and which ones to sell off. So it's tempting to think of this refinery as a single place, where you just keep the whole thing, get rid of the whole thing. But actually it's a whole heap of different businesses going on at once. And actually most of the staff on site were contractors of various sorts. And there were multiple areas of the site conducting different sorts of processing, which for most of their history hadn't been a single business unit anyway. 
So I don't want to claim to be an expert on refinery finances. And from the ability of BP to get things sorted out afterwards, it's possible that with the right people, the whole plant could have been run safely and profitably. But with the team they had before the accident, they just couldn't do this. It's pretty telling that for all their understanding that things weren't going well, it never occurred to anyone that they had the option to just stop. They could have told their corporate office that it wasn't possible to cut the budgets. And the evidence for this is that's exactly what a lot of other BP's other business units did. They just raised a middle finger to the corporate office when they were asked to make 25% cuts. They could have demanded capital upgrades. And the evidence for this is that they never made any request for big safety improvements that was actually turned down by their seniors off-site. They just got to the point where they didn't ask. And if they couldn't keep the budget, and couldn't keep the plant running safely within the budget, then the only true option was to sell off parts of the site. To free up the capital stuck in equipment that they couldn't morally or practically keep running. Less capital means that you need less profit to get a good return on investment. So they could then spend more relatively on staff development and maintenance for the remaining part of the business. They didn't do this and disaster struck. That's just about it for this episode of DisasterCast. To find out more about this or other episodes, visit disastercast.co.uk. If you use Twitter, iTunes, LinkedIn, Stitcher or Facebook, and you haven't yet written one tiny post or review to help others find the show, then please, please do so. My life is changing a lot over the next few months, so if you'd like DisasterCast to continue, it really needs an audience that's growing rather than just staying stable. If you don't use Twitter, iTunes, LinkedIn, Stitcher or Facebook, how do you find this podcast anyway? Use that method, tell someone else. The next episode is going to be about risky numbers. Big numbers, small numbers, crazy ways of calculating numbers. Till then, keep safe.